0: Welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Hello everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of Cool Canadian History. As many of our listeners are probably aware, there has been extensive coverage regarding the discoveries of mass graves at sites of former Indian residential schools, notably, and recently, Kamloops and Maryvale, Saskatchewan. While most of the media and the Canadian public call these discoveries, many within the Indigenous community call them recoveries, meaning that these graves have been known about for decades, and only now are the recoveries of these bodies being made. For many Canadians, this is a complicated and difficult subject to talk about, and frankly, hard to learn about as well. There is a lot of misinformation out there, and what information we do get are often only snippets of a much larger, more complicated story. And of course, some Canadians feel we bear no responsibility for the past transgressions of our nation's founders. Many, however, see this as a tragic failure of Canadian government and Canadian society if not an outright humanitarian crime. Major discussions are occurring throughout Canadian society about the history of residential schools and Canada's relationship with First Nations. Today I'm going to talk to an incredible historian in what might be our most important episode to date. This is Cool Canadian History's special episode Dr. Crystal Fraser and Residential Schools in Canada. Dr. Crystal Gale Fraser is Gwicha Gwichin and an intergenerational survivor of Indian residential schools. Crystal is originally from Anavik and Dechan Gojenshik, Northwest Territories. She is currently an assistant professor in history and native studies at the University of Alberta. Crystal's Ph.D. research was on Indian residential schools, and it won the prestigious John Bullen Prize from the Canadian Historical Association. Now, Dr. Fraser is the co-author of 150 Acts of Reconciliation, And this can actually be read at the website 150acts, that's 150acts.weebly.com. And that is our recommended reading for today's episode. I began our conversation by asking Dr. Fraser, what are the origins of the Indian residential school system?
1: Well, in what we now call Canada, uh we have to actually go back to the days of New France. And so the first of these residential institutions were actually uh, conceived and operated by the Recolettes. Um, forgive me for my French pronunciation, I'm not a French speaker, uh, but this was a Franciscan order. and you know, it was a general practice of assimilation. And so the need and desire to transform Indigenous children into more uh, Euro-Western models of work, of thinking, of religion, of economy, And so 1620 is when we see these schools emerge on the land that we now call Canada. Various Christian churches ran these schools, institutionalized these children, sometimes with the consent of parents, sometimes not. But they really had varying degrees of success. And it was really that year of Confederation, 1867, when Johnny McDonald and uh, his colleagues um, created Canada through Confederation um, and then really started to gear up this genocidal system of colonialism.
0: Why did uh, the Canadian government under Johnny McDonald, this sort of first Canadian administration and, and ensuing administrations, why did they choose to continue this, these programs, these residential schools?
1: Well, I mean, we, we know that through the construction of a nation state, which is what Canada is, we know that there's a process of othering and elimination that takes place. And so John A. MacDonald had this motto that he was wanting to build a white man's country. And so we see race there, but we also see gender. Mm -hmm. And so everything that was implemented, that was funded, that was supported, by his administration and others were basically meant to create this this great white man's country. Um, For for decades prior to Confederation, we already began to see indigenous peoples perceived as savages. They were dangerous, they were violent, they were heathen, um, uh, immoral dirty um, indigenous women were overtly sexualized um often called squaws if they were talked about it was um in the context of maybe their sexuality and their intimate partnerships Hmm. and so none of this was new when confederation came around but um One of the reasons why the Canadian government moved on this is because they looked south of the border to the United States. They saw the industrial schools, the industrial boarding schools that the US had implemented and then decided to use that as a model for assimilating indigenous peoples into into economy, into society. Uh, And so that's really when, when this program geared up.
0: Now you've ta- you've you mentioned it uh, even at the beginning but it's very clear that religion and religious institutions play a major role in the residential school programs how how were they incorporated in, and in fact how how did they divide up these religious denominations because it's not just a catholic story and it's not just it's you know it, there's numerous protestant churches that are involved in this too so how was this division of denominations carried out or implemented
1: It was highly competitive the churches were funded by the federal government, but but also by private donors. And so if if a church had an opportunity to build and then manage an Indian residential school in purely financial terms, the more students they could get in the school, the more funding they received. So it was a per capita basis. And it was often according to region and the perceived threats of indigenous peoples. And so mm-hmm. let's say on on the prairies in the west, we have all kinds of industrial schools uh, that ramped up. And Alberta had the most number of Indian residential schools, 25. Oh. Um, but this is where the government and missionaries perceived threats by Indigenous peoples, and so you look at, at at Cree people, you look at Métis, you look at Blackfoot. They all have histories of being strong sovereign nations. They all have histories of um, perhaps violent relations with the state, and they all speak out they're all very politically engaged Mm -hmm. and so in order to quash any kind of that behavior in the next generation the way that they did that was through implementing these residential schools and so you know the quote-unquote popularity uh, to even create these schools um were targeted according to region Mm -hmm. Um, i already mentioned that the churches were quite competitive in this regard Of course, there were the, like generally speaking, the Catholics, uh, but more specifically the Oblates and the Grey Nuns, um, the Church of England, uh, the United Church and the Presbyterians. And so definitely they would have had individual institutional approaches, but also all depending on where the schools were, they would have been overseen by the Department of Indian Affairs in different ways. And so particularly, in the north when these institutions opened up later just because of the geographic distance between the arctic and ottawa um those schools were not under the eye of the inspector as frequently Mm. um so lots of nuances to the system for sure
0: yeah so it's not it's not a homogenous system you know when we say residential schools it's not just sort of one framework fits all it it varies depending on region, uh, depending on uh, uh, threat, local, th- the perceived threat of local indigenous peoples, et cetera, et cetera. So that's really interesting. I think that's something that is is not understood as well uh, in current understandings of the residential school program. You mentioned, um, you already mentioned the word assimilation, and that's, I think that's a key word, maybe the key word, um one of the keywords, certainly. So assimilation is this goal, is this ultimate objective. Would you agree with that?
1: You know, this is a tricky one, but it's, it's a good conversation to have. And so as historians, we look in the past and we sometimes adopt the language that our predecessors used. Mm-hmm. And so certainly in the context of residential schools, of Indian affairs, they were using the term assimilation and, and, and historians have taken that up alongside this word of integration. Mm-hmm. But what I would say is that as a historian, looking back on this colonial network, um, residential schools being one, one facet of that, mm-hmm. that this was actually a system of genocide Okay, and, and perhaps, you know, the the architects of genocide, as we call them, per, perhaps the architects um, you know back in in 1876 when the Indian Act um, was legislated, perhaps they were not thinking of it as genocide, but we know over the last hundred and twenty five years we know what the consequences of this system has had on indigenous peoples, which is genocidal
0: right. Um, that's a really, really interesting. Uh, that's a that's a really great differentiation between these keywords, because um, as as you're certainly aware, genocide is such a loaded term. And it can be so complicated and it's full. It's in and of itself is full of nuance, um, um, certainly depending on country and time period and nation. So I'm, I'm glad you clarified that for the listeners. So let's let's go. Let's talk about the schools themselves. And again, these aren't this isn't a homogenous program. The schools vary in the ways they approach this ultimate objective of genocide. Well, how on a day to day basis do these schools function, generally speaking?
1: For sure, and and so again, this is going to vary according to region, but also according to uh, to time period, Um, I will say that with the formation of these industrial schools, Canada adopted this half day policy from the United States, and basically what that was was uh, these indigenous children um, would get up uh, quite early in the morning um, they would go and and milk the cows and and work with you know farm equipment like get those things done for the day um, they would then, Uh, have to go to mass or church whether that be in in french or latin um, a foreign language for them for sure Mm -hmm. Um, then they would spend a few hours in the classroom in the morning where really they received a subpar education a lot of these teachers were were not qualified um, you know, a teacher's salary at an Indian residential school was one of the lowest paying teaching jobs. And so they weren't getting, you know, quote, unquote, cream of the crop educators. Um, then uh, with the half day system, they would return to to the fields or to the kitchen or to the outhouses, wherever they were laboring during that afternoon, um, followed up again by, uh, by a meal and and then mass again at evening, um, and then to bed for the night. And and so this could vary according to age. For instance, some residential schools only went up to grade five or six. Oh. And if, if you have accomplished grade six and you are not yet 18 or 19 years old, you are there to fully labor. You are spending all of your day working in order to make sure the school runs properly. And so that was one one formation of the school um, when, when we look to more recent decades, um, and this is my area of direct expertise in the Northwest Territories. Um, side note, one of the reasons why why Indian residential schools are, are so curious in the North is because in 1946, uh, a special committee of the House of Commons called for the massive closure of Indian residential schools and for indigenous children to be integrated into provincial day schools. Now that took about 30, 40 years for that to actually happen, even longer. But, so that was 1946. Um, In 1955, 1960, 1965, there were brand new Indian residential schools that were just opening for the very first time in the north. Wow. Um, and so obviously those schools looked a little bit different. Um, you know, I had said that they did not have the same oversight from Indian affairs um, just because they were in, you know, quote unquote remote locations, mm-hmm. um, but also. territorial governments um took over those schools a little bit faster and so your day under you know a catholic run institution versus um a territorial or provincial run institution would obviously look different Mm -hmm. um regarding you know the involvement of of religion Um, at the government-run organizations they had the budget to hire a janitor so maybe there wasn't the amount of labor that was needed etc
0: right oh that's very interesting again that that speaks to this heterogeneous nature of the entire system doesn't it just how different different experiences were across the land and across different regions now in 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 the, this is a big question so feel free to focus on maybe the areas that you're more, most the the time periods you're most comfortable with but was there either from the indigenous or non-indigenous communities of canada resistance these schools and the implementation of these schools and the forced attendance or or, or the efforts by the government to force people to attend these schools?
1: 100%. And and so um, I am most comfortable with kind of this post-Confederation story. And, you know, we have many accounts of Indigenous families wanting their children to learn English. They want to train them. Um, for wage labor positions because Indigenous nations knew that things were changing that that they could not stop, you know, the building of the railway, they could not stop the arrival of of newcomers or settlers. and so they knew things were changing and they knew that in order to be successful um, that there needed to be a little bit of accommodation there. And so we do have some Indigenous parents seeking out these kinds of educational opportunities for their child. But here's where it gets um, a little bit sticky is that uh, they never consented to massive ins- institutionalization they never consented to um, forced attendance policies and in the indian act and so if if your child did not um was not institutionalized if you did not consent to that and there was a number of ways that they did that some families went and hid in the bush um Mm -hmm. literally removing themselves from the eye of the indian agent or the rcmp If families were caught doing that, they could be imprisoned under the Indian Act, they could face steep fines for not allowing their child to attend these schools. And those things did happen. Um, I, I have seen many letters from indigenous families to missionaries, various elected representatives of the settler government, you know, asking for the construction of day schools. Like, why is it that our children need to be removed from their culture, their family, their community, their language? Um, why can't we have day schools like other towns and cities? Mm-hmm. Um, so there was quite a bit of pushback, but there was also other strategic ways To make sure the children were okay and and so accounts of you know indigenous women seeking out positions um, as a laundress at residential schools at least if they were there doing laundry they could engage possibly with students they could look at them and and hopefully see they're physically okay they could Monitor the school, what was happening there, uh, and then they could report all of this back to the community and families.
0: Yeah, well, that's very, very interesting, and and so this re- resistance plays a, a part in this narrative. Um, now, the the schools last for so long, and very clearly, and this is very clear in the historical record. There are numerous there there are numerous times where different people bring to light very clear problems in a variety of ways within the, this, this school system uh, why why does it seem like there was no serious attempts ever at really reforming the schools on mass or am I wrong was there was there reforms actually made
1: so this is a great question and I'll answer it more generally and more specifically so generally there was no attempt to reform because the schools were doing exactly what they were designed to do um, More specifically, you know, just last week, I was looking at records from the Dunbow Industrial School, just north of Red Deer in Alberta here. And there were so many letters that that said, you know, this student's parents are complaining that, that their child is not getting enough to eat. This student's mom wrote in and said that, you know, 4.30 in the morning is unreasonable for a 10 year old child to wake up and go milk a cow. Um, And so we have on record all of these things of of engagement um, from parents, from the community. Um, And I mean, you'll also note here that it was illegal for Indigenous people to gather and for them to hire a lawyer until the mid 20th century. So absolutely no ability for any kind of legal recourse. Um, Dr. Peter Bryce, in 1907, he was the chief medical officer for the Department of Indian Affairs. He investigated dozens of Indian residential schools and found the conditions to be absolutely appalling, overcrowding, uh, not up to fire code, poor ventilation, um, which all led to disease, illness and deaths. And so in in his report, he had cited that some schools had a 40% death rate. Um, In my own research, actually at this Dunbow school, um, one year it was closer to a 70% death rate. And so he, of course, uh, you know, raised the alarm. He was ignored. The report was never published. Um, He was eventually pushed pushed out into retirement when in 1921 he published a national crime which was the report for indian affairs and got that out there um you know with the decades that followed obviously um particularly with world war ii there was this rethinking about what can what canada is what kind of a society are we? Particularly because Canadians were now beginning to understand um, how certain people in the Holocaust were treated, and they started looking towards Indigenous nations within Canada. And so there was this movement of of more, more sympathy, this talk about indigenous rights, um, but it was always still under the framework of paternalism. Right. And so even though we were having these conversations, this is when the forced relocation of Inuit happened in the far Arctic. Um, this is the RCMP dog slaughter. We have you know, forced sterilizations of indigenous women at TB hospitals and psych- psychiatric institutions. Um, so this is really, the long way of saying that we've known this the entire time
0: right yeah and that's and that's really i that's i think one of the most important points to make historically speaking is this isn't this isn't new right and 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 though people are discovering this let's say the average person is maybe learning about this you know there were there were people in the indigenous community and there were experts in the settler community who were all talking about these problems and nothing was really done and it's interesting so you talk about the second world war and there is this social and cultural shift to be a bit more sympathetic is a good word there's also you know of course canada's experience with japanese internment and 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 another example of us having to sort of take a look at ourselves what is canada what does it mean to be canadian yet in the post-second world war period, there are clear examples of continued paternalistic action, continued um, you know, humanitarian, uh, humanitarian issues that are arising, like one of them, for instance, uh, of the famous terms, the Sixties Scoop. And I wonder if you could give our listeners a little sense of what is the Sixties Scoop that they talk about?
1: For sure. And, and all of these systems are linked. And so when you look at, at Indigenous child intervention, we, we think of Indian residential schools as possibly like the first the first rung on the ladder I suppose sure. the second would be the 60 scoop and then the third would be our um, current modern-day child welfare system um, and so as these residential schools started closing um, during the you know, and the sixty scoop is interesting because some people actually date it, uh, the late 40s, and we know that it actually spanned throughout until about 1985 so much, much longer than the sixty scoop would suggest, but it was the same philosophy behind residential schools and so um take now ask questions later it was the use of rcmp for forced removal it was this assumption that indigenous parents particularly mothers are incompetent Mm. they're dangerous they're dirty they're immoral and um Yeah, and so all of these reasons to justify placing an Indigenous child with a white family. And so it was another way to sever this connection between um, a child and their family, but not only that, to actually remove them from their sovereign lands. And so if you can interrupt that cultural continuity, the speaking of languages, um, and then place them with a family that can model whiteness, Right. that can show them what it's like to be productive and industrious and religious Christian then they will actually know what it means to be Canadian
0: interesting so and I like that metaphor there's sort of another wrong another component of this broader colonial system of this assimilationist this genocidal system um, now it's it, so just like the 60s scoop it, it's not just the 1960s it, it, and I've heard this by other by other academics that it's this multi-decade um, um, you know, process uh, Just like the 60s scoop, the residential schools themselves last for an extended period of time, finally closing down, I believe, the last one in the mid-1990s, I believe, was the final one that closed down. So why do they last for so long? I mean, boy, like the mid-90s, that is not, historically speaking, that's a blink of an eye ago. And and one would think that as the, the 20th century progresses, and these social movements are, are, are erupting in the 60s and 70s. And there's sort of this very real attempt to reform the way we interact with each other and interact with different peoples. Yet here, the residential school systems continue. Um, maybe you could explain why they get or, or how that why they go for so long and why they end up finally being shut down.
1: Yeah, all great questions, and I mean, maybe for a lot of listeners, this is really like a head scratcher, um, because 1996 wasn't that long ago, and to put it into some context, you know, um, I'm not sure of the demographic of your listeners, but, but I was born in 1980, um, and, and so when Grolier Hall, um, the residential school in Inuvik, Grolier was one of the most notorious institutions for sexual assault, when it closed in 96, I was 16, like the only thing stopping me from being institutionalized at that school was because I lived in Inuvik. All of the kids from the neighboring settlements or small towns had to go to Grolier. Oh. And and so, yeah, there are people uh, of my age and my generation who, who are direct survivors. Um, What I will say is that it's it's complicated. Um, For instance, Groyer Hall in the Northwest Territories uh, was taken over by the territorial government in 1984. And so that would have been a territorial choice. Um, Same with the one in in Saskatchewan. Um, And, you know, still trying to serve this real need of educating students and not, not giving them access to day schooling in their communities. Um, so there's that, except you know what, when we put 1996 in, co- it, it, in context, I mean, really what's going on? Like we we had the Meech Lake Accord, we had the so-called Oka Crisis, we had the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, RCAP, We had, you know, survivors coming out, starting with Phil Fontaine, making national public disclosures of widespread sexual assault. Um, You know, a lot of good work came out of RCAP, um, as it did with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and now the Missing and Murdered um, Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry. But you know what? We've also had... um, the murders of Cindy Gladue and Colton Bushy and those acquittals. We've also had this federal government buy pipelines, all in the name of reconciliation. We have seen widespread systemic racism in healthcare with Joyce, Joyce Eshaquan. Um, so, so many different examples of how colonialism and structural racism, goes on today and so i suppose in my perspective yes 1996 was not that long ago does it surprise me that it took that long definitely
0: not now it was there it when when they were finally shut down and this is kind of maybe a bit more of a technical issue but when they were shut down was this the government of canada saying residential schools are bad and they're gone now or was this just sort of like this strange organic process of the end of this long standing brutal system?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I can speak to the northern situation. I'm not sure about the Saskatchewan School, um, but it basically came down to, you know, the government of the Northwest Territories had been managing it for. Well, since 1984, um, during that time period, they were able to construct some local day schools. So children would not have to be institutionalized in Inuvik. So the need for such a big structure um, was dwindling. Um, And, you know, at the end of the day, it just wasn't financially feasible for them. And so just making the choice to, to end that residence program, um, the residential school in Anubik, uh, and to go ahead and, and close it down, which was you know, really a landmark for a lot of former survivors there. I will say, however, that this resident, um, residence program continues because there are still children in the North who do not have access to day schooling and they now travel to larger regions in order to stay with a billet family and so these questions are not necessarily done they're just being presented in a different form
0: that's a yeah that's a great 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 explanation um it's you know you've hinted at it in a few of your 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 talking points here but there 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 are these efforts at reconciliation there's efforts at trying to Find answers, trying to come to some sort of uh, uh, better understanding of what occurred, and then at the very same time, there are events that are occurring. There are examples of, of things that are telling us there's still a lot of problems. Um, so, in your in your opinion, ha- has there been actual tangible efforts at reconciliation, or, or are we are we a long way off still?
1: Well, we're definitely a long way off still. Okay. Um, so as I mentioned, we have the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that did good work. We also have these 94 calls to action. And you know I'm sure you know that scholars Eva Jewell and Ian Mosby started keeping track of the recommendations a few years ago. Um, if memory serves me correct, in 2019, nine of the recommendations had been implemented. Uh, 2020 we actually went back to eight um, and then now in in light of everything that is happening and this just uh, breakneck speed of apparently needing to reconcile all of a sudden mm-hmm. in light of the news out of Kamloops and Kawasis First Nation um, more mm-hmm. of those recommendations more of those acts have been implemented but there's still a ton that needs to be done. And I mean, it's it's cliche to say this now, but we need truth before reconciliation. And and we, we are just getting a glimpse of a little bit of the truth here today.
0: Yeah, and that, that segues perfectly into, you know, the final question here. And that is, there, there obviously is, but forgive me for asking it this way, is there significance in the discoveries of these mass graves right now, in terms of the current relationship between the Indigenous peoples, or Indigenous people of Canada, and the, the federal government and the governments of Canada?
1: Right. So I would probably say that this is not actually a discovery. This is a recovery right. that Indigenous families and communities, this knowledge has long been there. Right. Um, and I think that. More of these announcements, more of these recoveries are going to be happening over the next several months, possibly years, as more First Nations and Indigenous communities um, want to use this ground penetrating radar at the sites of, of institutions. And, you know, I will say that the TRC recognized 139 Indian residential schools. There were many other residential schools of that they did not recognize. Mm-hmm. There were many other institutions that operated like residential schools that they did not recognize, like Indian sanatoria, like psych- psychiatric institutions, like orphanages, etc. And so there is re- this is all to say that, that there is a ton of work to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, It's just now waiting to see how, how government will, will support that basically. And so Alberta has announced $8 million, I believe Ontario was 10 million, federal government was 27, Um, but really this needs to be indigenous community led. We're, we're still in a time of mourning and, and ceremony and sadness. And, and for instance, in Alberta, the application deadline for a grant is January 15th. Um, and I mean, if you talk to any GPR experts or archeologists, they will tell you that generally you want the archival research done before any kind of recovery efforts are made. And, and just in my experience, that can take two to four years per school. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure so it's
0: a long, it's a long, long, long process that, that we are, we've, it's, it's interesting, because in the public eye, it feels like we're just starting. And what you're really saying is that there has been a lot of people who are, who have been pushing for these recoveries to occur, not discoveries, as we as many settlers still are, are referring to them currently. Um, that it, I mean, it's it's a complicated, it's complicated, it's sad, it's tragic, and and it's it's going to be a, a long journey forward. Um, so I, I really thank you for for coming on this podcast. I, I wonder if you could, if you wouldn't mind, maybe telling our listeners what you focus on. We've gotten a sense of it and how you came to your discipline.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so. I'm Gwichia Gwichin, I'm from Anuvik and Dechencho Genjik, which is my family's fish camp along the Mackenzie River. And uh, my pursuit of becoming a historian started at six years old when I showed up and said, in these words, who the hell is Sir Alexander Mackenzie and why is my school named after him? Go. Um, got, got in trouble for swearing. Um, <laughs> but definitely, that was my first curiosity. Um, and then, you know, like many other Indigenous kids, like, lost my way in in my teens, quit school was homeless, etc. Um, you know, took a chance and, and finished school and came to university not even knowing what's what I wanted to do in my 20s had no idea about residential schooling um I mean I knew that my family suffered from addiction from incarceration uh from violence but I didn't have any answers of why Mm -hmm. um and was really you know once I had the BA once I had the MA I was prompted by my community to say, "Can you do the residential school work for us?" Um, and so my my topic, I suppose, my research, my passion, um, came from a community led proposal uh, arrangement, and and so that's what I've done over this last you know decade. And it definitely has has not been easy. There for sure have been times where Um, you know, you want to give up, but I'm sure people think of that during any PhD, but, but in this one, you know, writing the chapter on, on sexual assault, like having, having to seek therapy in order to keep going through your program. Right. Um, but also working as a public scholar and, and trying to give back, um, trying to get back to the north but also like residential school survivors more broadly and and know that you know this information is not mine um yes it's it's helped me get a degree but i'm going to try and give back to community every way i can
0: well i think that's a great way uh, to wrap it up thank you so much for coming on this podcast and, and thank you for sharing our story with us and thank you for the work you're doing
1: yeah thank you for your interest it was my pleasure
0: I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at V-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool.